If you take your Bibles and turn to Psalm chapter 2, Psalm chapter 2. Some of you are going, well, wait a second, aren't we in going through the book of Genesis? And the answer is, yes, we are. We'll get there this morning. Uh, this is kind of an unusual sermon from one standpoint, because as we've gone through the books of Gen- or the book of Genesis so far, we've kind of zoomed in on passages and uh, answered what uh, the Scripture and uh, the Holy Spirit would have out of those passages. And so uh, you could picture it this way. It's sort of like uh, an individual who goes walking through a forest and as you go through that forest, you can look up at trees and look up uh, or look at them up close and see the different details of the bark and the branches and, and everything that is there. But uh, sometimes it's profitable not to get up close and look at these things, but to take a step back. In fact, to get into an airplane and fly overhead and get an overall picture of what's going on. That's kind of what we're going to be doing in the sermon this morning. <coughs> We're going to be looking at uh, a passage eventually in Genesis chapter 11. We'll get there. But we want you to understand a overall kind of overarching thing that's going on in the Scriptures that uh, we find in Genesis chapter 11 that is continuing on today and is going to go on right through uh, the end of human history. Kind of give us an overall view but taking a smaller passage in Genesis 11 and getting an understanding of what's going on in our world. don't know if you paid attention to the news much this week. I've gotten to the point where I don't pay too much attention to it, but did see that there was a meeting of world leaders this past week in, in Cambodia. They had what was known as the G20 Summit. This is where you have uh, 20 countries that are viewed as being economically ahead of everyone else and uh, are the leaders on the world stage politically. And the leaders get together and they wine and dine one another and uh, say different things to each other and declare and give speeches and and what they have as a vision for uh, these groups of nations to be able to do. As part of this meeting, they invite uh, a couple of individuals uh, to be a part of this meeting, and sometimes they allow these individuals who are not necessarily political or elected leaders or leaders of their country to speak. This last week, they had an individual by the name of Klaus Schwab come and speak to these nations, uh, these leaders of nations, and speak to them. You may not know much about Klaus Schwab, but he is an individual that has a play on what is going on in the world and their thoughts. He's an individual from Switzerland. Uh, He uh, is a professor at the University of Geneva and has been there since 1972. And he's a teacher of economics and particularly of what is described as a stakeholder capitalism. He kind of claims to believe that if we can get all of our production together, in fact, he wrote a, uh, a subject of a book of one of his was the Fourth Industrial Revolution. What his thought is, is that if you get all the banks together and all of our industrial output together uh, and just kind of work to connect all of our societies together, whether it be 
currency being the same, whether it be uh, the fact that uh, we have the same kind of controls for our climate uh, usage or uh, our products and production, whether or not all of these things stuck together, he believes the fact that there is a possibility that we can accomplish something that has never happened before in human history. In fact, what he suggested in this meeting, as uh, he is an individual that, if you've ever heard of a meeting uh, at a place called Davos Climate Summit, he's the one that organizes it. I find it ironic that they have this climate summit and they're talking about the use of all sorts of fossil fuels and whatever, and everyone comes on their own private jet. Uh, to this of uh, people who are actors and actresses or political figures or well-known individuals show up at this. He's the one that organizes this conference. But at this meeting of the G20 summit this last week, he was there and as he was speaking, he came up and, and made a statement that was quite incredible. When you think about what the scripture has to say back in Genesis chapter 11, he trying to get the nations to get their economies together, their industry together, their computer technology together. What he said is this, is that we as leaders, what we have is this ability, what we have to confront is a deep systematic restructuring of our world. This will take some time and the world will look differently after we have gone through this transition process. What he's declaring here is that we're going to have suddenly a new kind of world that's going to take place that we, if we get our resources together as humanity and we interconnect and we do all of this, that somehow we're going to have a different type of society. Some have called this idea a philosophy called transhumanism. The idea is, is that we as human beings, if we just get everything together, we combine our efforts, we organize ourselves together, that there is this possibility that will create a new kind of humanity. Realize that most of these people that are giving and spouting these philosophies have no concern for God. In fact, they believe in the evolutionary process, and, and they believe that this is uh, how we got here was through just the strong surviving but what they are believing in is this, is that if we could work our resources together and get everything united, that we could make a name for ourselves because what we'd be able to do is create a new kind of humanity where we've created some society that no longer has problems. Now you think about this, this really does sound like what we looked at last week when it comes to the Tower of Babel. The Tower of Babel, we looked at that passage in Genesis 11 last week, and here you've got a group of people that have been commanded by God after they've left the ark that they're supposed to uh, multiply and go across the face of the whole earth, that they're to use the resources that are there, but to expand across the earth and, and to use these things that are there. And what the, the people there at uh, the Tower of Babel decided was this, is that they were going to build something. They were going to build something so that God could not come down and separate them, them out. They didn't want to separate from one another. They wanted to be connected. Uh, and what they were wanting to accomplish was this, was to make a name for themselves. Say, what do you mean, what kind of name? A name like God. 
Because they're building the structure, and the, the idea of the structure is this, is that they were going to build something that got right into God's heaven. That they were going to be there. In fact, the term Babel means gate. That's what they thought. They were making a gate for God to be able to come down to them and uh, they could go up to Him. That they were going to be in the, well, right in the throne room of God. That they somehow were going to make a name for themselves and be just like God. And what it required for them at the Tower of Babel was to, well, break God's rules. Break God's commands. Ignore what he said. They ignored the command to go across the face of the whole earth. And they were saying, if we just unite, we won't be scattered. We can do something. Uh, we don't have any restraints if we're together. Do you realize that this has been humanity throughout history? You know, sometimes we think, oh, well, that's just the Tower of Babel where mankind's trying to unite and, and trying to make a name for themselves and throw off what God says. Well, Psalm 2 tells us differently. If you go into the book of Psalms, there is these two introductory psalms. Psalm 1 is a psalm that talks about, Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law doth he meditate both day and night. It's about this individual who is in right relationship with God. And the ultimate blessed individual would be Christ because he's one uh, who meets all these standards. But those that follow him uh, are going to be people that live their life like this. They're going to delight in the law of the Lord. And what they're going to find is even in the most difficult of circumstances, they're going to be like a tree that's planted by the rivers of water. There's going to be a strength to them. But you say, what's, what's an opposition to people uh, that are following after God? And chapter 2, or Psalm 2, gives us that. In fact, it gives us the world that a blessed person is going to live in. And it's one that's in complete opposition to God. I want us to just read through this psalm here because it really gives us the, the overview that this idea of what happened in Babel of we can make our names for ourselves and God doesn't have a right to tell us what to do. This has been the continual habit of mankind. Psalm 2 starts with this statement, why do the heathen rage? Now understand that word heathen, we sometimes go, oh, why do the pagans rage? No, that word heathen is the word translated nations. Okay, why do the nations rage and the people imagine an empty thing? You go, well, what's the empty thing that they're imagining? What are they coming up with in their creativity that they're imagining to do? Well, verse 2 tells us that the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. Now, you go, what's that word anointed mean? Well, you know how to underline that, put it out in the side reference if you don't have this. It's the word Messiah. Okay? The New Testament translates that word Messiah into Christ. Okay? The world at large is taking a stand, and what they're trying to do is to fight against God and his anointed one, his Christ. And they're saying this let us break their bands asunder. 
and cast away their cords from us. What they see is that God is binding them, restricting them, holding them in. And if they could just go across some of these boundaries, they would accomplish things that would be beyond imagination if they could just do this. You know, it's sort of like that same subtle uh, hinting in the Garden of Eden. Remember with Eve, there she is tempted to look at this, f- uh, the, this uh, fruit of this tree that is forbidden by God, and she sees that it's a desire to make one wise. And what Satan just simply says is this, is that you will be like what? You'll be like God. You'll know good and evil. You'll know these things. He's just restricting you because he doesn't understand That's what our world has been like. If we could just go across certain boundary lines that have been set up by God and go past these things, we would be able to create something beyond uh, imagination. It would be beyond what God is doing. We'd be able to make a name for ourselves. You say, okay, what's God's response to this? It's kind of uh, almost ironic Mankind puts in all this effort to try and prove that they're God uh, or like God. And verse 4, you have this. He that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall have them in derision. Then shall he speak unto them in his wrath and vex them in his sore displeasure. And then he makes this statement, Yet have I set my king upon the holy hill of Zion. God says this, I've got a plan. You may think that you've got all these plans that if you can just do certain things that you'll be able to accomplish certain things in life. And what I'm saying is this, your plans are not going to be effective. They're not going to work. I have a plan to set someone in my holy hill of Zion. I've got a plan to save individuals, to rescue them, to be the answer to their questions. And you have in verse number 7, This statement, I will declare the decree the Lord hath said unto me, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. And this is God speaking to the son, or God the father speaking to this anointed one, the son. Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. Ask of me and I shall give thee the heathen, okay, the nations for thy inheritance, and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron, thou shalt dash them in pieces with a potter's vessel. Do you realize that the nations are going to attempt to rise up against God and make a name for themselves? And as you read, and part of God's plan that this one who is the one who's going to be set in this holy hill is one day going to come and crush the nations that rise up against him. You have this in, in Revelation chapter 19. It makes it very clear. God's got a plan. God is working things out to get his Messiah, his son, to be right where he needs to be at, despite the fact that the world at large is trying to come up with its own plans, its own purposes, and trying to do this. And this psalm ends in verse number 10, and it says this. Since you have, right here in Psalm 2, laid out the plan of God, what he's planning As human beings, here's what you ought to do. Verse 10, be wise, therefore, you kings. Be instructed, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear. Rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish from the way. When his wrath is kindled but a little, blessed are all they that put their trust in 
him. What he's simply saying is this, this one is coming, what you need to do is to put your trust and confidence in him, not in your own abilities, not in your own wisdom, not in who you think you can or what you can do collectively as the nations. No, you as individuals need to come and put your faith and trust in the son. Now you say, okay, well, you're done with your sermon. No, that's introduction. Because I want us to turn back to Genesis chapter 11. And I want us to see that what you find in Genesis chapter 11, though it's not really exciting reading, but you can see that God has got a plan and he's working it out and not exactly in the way that we would. See, the whole book of Genesis that we've gone through to this part, and some of you have been with us and some of you haven't, is that the book of Genesis is getting us down to a group of people and a certain tribe through whom God's answer is going to come. You say, God's answer for what? God's answer for sin. Man's greatest problem. You know, we we can think about all sorts of things that the world uh, says is a problem climate change, the economy, uh, you know, all of these things that they just kind of go through and say, these are all the problems that we have. No, mankind's biggest problem is that they have a sin nature. They have no answer for that. In fact, some of the things that they do that are self-destructive come right out of who they are. They're sinners. And the book of Genesis starts off in Genesis chapter 3 where you have this story where God's created a perfect world for mankind to live in and mankind says, I'm going to do my own thing. This tree that he said I'm not supposed to eat of, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, I think we're going to go ahead and have uh, that. And you find in Genesis 3 that God comes and he questions uh, what they have done the serpent that tempted Eve and and Adam and uh, Eve that are there. And God makes a statement that really is the jumping board for the rest of Scripture. It's the springboard uh, for us to go, okay, here's the course that we're going to find through the rest of Scripture. In Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15, God the Father is speaking to this serpent who is not just merely a serpent, it's that old serpent as he's described in Revelation. He's speaking to the devil satan and he makes this statement and i will put enmity between thee and the woman and between thy seed and her seed it shall bruise thy head and thou shalt bruise his heel what he simply says is this is you may have tempted the woman but there is going to be one who comes out of the line of the woman Someone out of her seed that is going to be one who eventually crushes your head is going to bring victory over sin, over the death that is caused as the result of sin. I am going to do this. And as you read this, uh, you go, okay, what's the answer? You know, we would expect that the story would take place immediately, that as soon as Eve has the first son, that this one would be the one that would conquer sin and death and Satan and bring about victory. And that's kind of what Eve thought. Because Eve names Cain the first son that she has, that she names him this. His name means this, I've obtained, I've gotten. She thinks that she's gotten the answer. 
We know the story. Cain is the first one to kill his brother. The first murder takes place as a result of this one. It's not that you have, uh, that she's gotten the one that's the answer uh, through this son. It's not him that's going to do this. Cain is banished from the garden and he uh, is not the answer. And you look at his family, uh, they are a self-destructive family. In fact, the last one that's mentioned in his family line in Genesis chapter 4 is talking about how he murdered somebody else who offended him. And if anybody else offends him, he'll repay 70 times 7. And he's going to get him back. You're going, that's not going to go well. But what you find is that an alternative to Cain is that there is one who's born by the name of Seth. Seth is this third son of Adam and Eve. And as you look at Genesis chapter 5, we follow that family line through. And as there's individuals in that line of Seth, uh, you find that certain ones of them are ones who are obviously ones who are following after God. In fact, when Seth uh, is born, or Seth has his first son, it says, at this time man began to call upon the name of the Lord. Uh, it's at this point where people start proclaiming the name of the Lord, who he is to others. You have a whole society of people that are Canaanites that are going their own way, doing their own thing. They went off from the presence of the Lord. They don't want God. And you have this line that is proclaiming his name. You have people in that line by the name of Enoch. Enoch, who walked with God and suddenly was not. Or you, you have a one who's Lamech, who has a son by the name of Noah, and he says, through this son, the world will find comfort. This line was the line that God said, okay, this is the line that I am choosing through whom to answer the problems of mankind. Now, you might think when it comes to Noah that the answer's in Noah. Noah builds an ark to the saving of his family uh, and doing this. And, well, <clears throat> he does save his family. He does rescue them from the destruction that is there. But as we read in Genesis chapter 9, here you have that story of Noah, a righteous man, as he's described in Scripture. He loves the Lord, but he still has a problem with sin because you find him getting drunk. He's running around naked. And you just kind of go, okay, what happened? Is he the answer? Well, he is not the savior, savior of mankind. And when you get done with Genesis chapter 9, you have this, this, this story that takes place. You have Ham, Shem, and Japheth, the sons of Noah, that God is saying, okay, here's their family line. And you get to chapter 10, and you have 70 nations, descendants of Ham, Shem, and Japheth. And you have this listing of all these nations, and as we looked at last week, we, we can come to this conclusion that God loves the nations. Okay, all people, all tongues. Uh, it's not that he is just exclusively focusing in on a certain group of individuals and says, I only want them uh, to have any kind of blessing. No, you look at this, that God is concerned about the nations. And as we look at the, the rest of our uh, sermon today, you'll begin to see this as part of God's plan. But then when you get to Genesis chapter 11, you have this whole event where mankind tries to combine themselves together and say, we don't like what God's doing. 
He can't tell us what to do. And God says, okay, I'm not going to come down and judge with the flood or anything like that. I'll just confuse the languages. And from that time on, uh, we've had all sorts of different languages and tongues across all of the nations. What was supposed to be the gate to heaven, suddenly Babel becomes known as confusion. And the nations scatter. And it's at that point that the book of Genesis suddenly goes, okay, let's talk about the line of Shem. And you go, why does this happen? Because as you go through the book of Genesis, you're going to find uh, all of these statements. These are the generations of. He said that's kind of the way that Moses is going to give us our chapter references. And he's just going to say, these are the generations of so-and-so. And you see what the generations of so-and-so do or does. And uh, as you go through these different generations, what sometimes you have is that God says, okay, here's this one group of people, but this is not the group of people that God is going to accomplish his purposes through. He's not going to accomplish all of his purposes through 70 nations. Okay, these different nations that are listed there. No, he chooses one that's insignificant out of that. What we find in Genesis chapter 10 and verse, uh, or chapter 11 and verse 10, it says this, these are the generations of Shem. Shem was 100 years old and begat Arphax uh, two years after the flood. And Shem lived after he begat Arphax 500 years and begat sons and daughters. And you go through this listing and you're kind of going, okay, there's all these names again. And it sounds very much like the same listing that we had in chapter 5 where it says, okay, here's the line of Seth. This is the line I've chosen to bring deliverance through. And now you have this line of Shem where it talks about, just like Seth's line, hey, there's these individuals who have sons and the sons have sons and they, they have sons and they live a certain amount of years. But in the midst of this, there's an individual that's focused in on. If you look at verse number Uh, 16 there's an individual by the name of eber some said he is the individual we get the name hebrew from eber hebrew but he has a son by the name of peleg Peleg, or Eber lived, and he begat Peleg, 430 years, begat sons and daughters, and Peleg lived 30 years, and begat Reu, and Peleg lived after he begat Reu, 200 years, and nine years, and begat sons and daughters, and you kind of go through this whole listing. But what we know about Peleg is that in his time frame, what happened was this, is that the earth divided. You go, what happened to the earth divided? It was the Tower of Babel. And Peleg, we follow his family out after that, and you just kind of work it through, and you get down to verse 24, and you have this individual by the name of Nahor, who begat Terah. And Nahor lived after he begat Terah 119 years and begat sons and daughters, and Terah lived 70 years and begat Abraham, Nahor, and Haran. When you look at this list, you find that God's continuing plan is going to go through this seemingly insignificant line. In fact, in the table of nations, none of these people are mentioned outside of Peleg. And God says, okay, I've got this line that I want you to follow out, and it ends up with an individual by the name of Terah who has three sons, much like Noah had three sons, Ham, Shem, and Japheth. It's kind of just hinting at the fact, okay, this is one through whom you're going to have God's plan carried out of being able to save mankind, to rescue mankind, to be able to do this. 
And we get down to this point and you go, okay, so what's the deal here? Well, it's the center portion of this whole book. Because you get down to verse number 27 and you have this statement, these are the generations of Terah. Now remember when you have these are the generations of Terah, it's not saying we're going to follow Terah out and see what he does. No, it says we're going to follow out his offspring, his generation. And you see this is that Terah begat Abraham, Nahor, and Haran. This statement, now these are the generations of, is the center part of the book. You look through all these are the generations of, this is the center chapter, if we were looking at the book. And it is the longest of them, because it goes from Genesis chapter 11 to Genesis chapter 25. This whole story that you want told, and you go, who is it all about? It's about an individual by the name of Abram, eventually becomes known as Abraham. His name Abram means father. And the name Abraham, which God changed it to, is the father of many nations. God is zooming in on an insignificant group of people who are an insignificant line. And God says, I'm focusing in on this. This group. And they're not all that impressive of characters. Because think about this, if we were starting something or trying to accomplish something, we would go out and find the absolute best people. We would go out and find the people most qualified or the, the best of the best. And when you look at these individuals of Terah and Abram and Nahor and Haran, they're not the ones that you would think that God would choose initially to be the ones that would be eventually through whom all the peoples would be delivered say why they were imperfect characters in fact what we find out we have commentary on these individuals uh, Terah and Haran and Abram and uh, Nahor that these individuals were idol worshipers Joshua chapter 24 and verse 42 says this uh, about them uh, he says this, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, your fathers dwelt on the other side of the flood. And it's talking about the Euphrates River. In the old time, even Terah, the father of Abraham and the father of Nacor, and they served other gods. Terah, Nahor, Haran, Abram, they were idol worshipers. You say, well, wait a second, if God's trying to deliver the nations and the peoples, he's not going to start off with a person who's an idol worshiper. He's going to have, no, they were. In fact, the city that they were from, as we find, as we go through this story, is they come from a city known as Ur. It's in southern Mesopotamia in the region that we presently call Iraq, uh, at the Tigris and Euphrates River. And Ur was one of the largest cities in the world at that time. And it was known specifically for the worship of the moon god, along with a whole bunch of others. But it was known for that. It was central to that. The city that they moved to eventually, the city of Haran, was another city given to moon worship. And so right from the start, if we're thinking, okay, I'm God, what kind of individual I use? I wouldn't be using individuals like this. But there is a time where somewhere, uh, somehow, these individuals are come face to face with God and become worshipers of God. We're not told the story of exactly how that happens. 
We're not told how it it takes place, but we do know uh, from Genesis chapter 31, Jacob talking about his great-grandfather and great-great-grandfather, when he's making uh, a pledge between him and Laban, he says this, the God of Abraham, the God of Nahor, the God of their father, which would have been Terah, judged betwixt us. Jacob says, they worship the one true God. So somewhere along the line, these individuals came to know who God was. But as you read through the story of what happens to them, uh, they move from Ur, they uh, move from the land there. Verse 28, Haran died before his father. Terah was in the land of his nativity in Ur of the Chaldees. And Abram and Nahor took them wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarah. The name of Nahor's wife was Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and the father Iscah. But Sarah was barren, and she had no children. And Terah took Abram his son, and Lot the son of uh, his son's son, and Sarah the daughter-in-law, his son Abraham's wife. And they went forth with them from Ur the Chaldees to go into the land of Canaan. And they came unto Haran and dwelt there. Okay, here you have this story where God's saying, okay, I've got these people who were idol worshipers. Somewhere along the line, they become followers of the one true God. And they get instructions somewhere along the line that they need to move to the land of Canaan. And that God is going to bring deliverance through this group of people. And the individual that's taken is Abram. And you find his wife is named Sarah. And the only thing we know about her is this at this point. Is that she's barren. She doesn't have any children. You're kind of going, okay, God's got a plan through the seed of the woman to deliver the nations. And here he's focusing in on this individual by the name of Abraham. And he's got this wife by the name of Sarah. And okay, he's going to be the one to deliver. But wait a second, his wife's barren. How's that going to happen? How is God going to work through individuals like this? And for us, we always think that God has to choose the best in order to get things accomplished. And he can use whatever he wants to use. I think about the times where in considering the disciples, uh, when you look at the story of Jesus and you look at those 12 that he finally chooses and you're going, why them? Bunch of fishermen, untrained, uneducated individuals that were emotional and fiery at times. That's why James and John were known as the sons of thunder. Uh, they've got tempers. Peter's always sticking his foot in his mouth. And you're going, how could God use an individ- individuals like that? You even look at the church when it's describing Peter or Paul describes the church and he talks in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 about not many noble, not many mighty, not many wise are called. Do you realize that when it comes to God's working right now in the church, he's not picked the elite of the world? Well, sometimes there are people like that that uh, get saved and become part of the church. It's usually individuals that are of no reputation, not famous to accomplish God's purposes. See, what the story of Genesis is getting us to is this, that God is choosing individuals, not the ones that we would normally choose. Eventually, as you go through the story, you're going to have the story where Isaac is born of Abram along with Ishmael, Ishmael being the oldest. But realize this, the oldest is not going to be the one through whom God works. It's going to be through Isaac. And then as you follow the chart through, Isaac has two sons, and the oldest is Esau, and the youngest is Jacob. And you go, okay, who is God going to work through? 
to bring about deliverance. Esau, the, the strong and healthy one, the, the one that is uh, full of energy and is the athlete of the family, is strong. No, he chooses the, the homebody. Jacob, a deceiver. That's literally what his name means. He's a person who's always trying to grab somebody's uh, feet and, and pull the carpeting out from underneath them. He's always doing that throughout his life. God uses that individual. And then he has 12 sons. And you go through these 12 sons and some of them are rotten individuals. They're murderers. They're immoral. But you get to the end of the story, and as you get to the end of Genesis, you find out that there's a certain tribe that's in there, uh, the tribe of Judah. He's the fourth son, and through that son, there's going to be one who's going to have a scepter who's going to bring peace, and it's going to be through the line of Judah. See, what God is doing is that he is working through people that we would not necessarily expect. As we work through the plan of Genesis with this, this section that is just kind of a transition section, it's not one that's normally preached from, understand that God doesn't normally work the way that we think that he's going to work. He works with unusual ways and through unusual people in order to accomplish his purposes. You get to the story and you find out that Abram is told right at the beginning of the story, and we'll focus in on this uh, in two weeks' time, uh, we'll, we'll focus in on this agreement that God makes with Abram. I mean, out of all the people in the world and all the nations in the world, God comes to Abram in Genesis chapter 12 and verse 1. Look at this. It says this, Now the Lord had said unto Abram, Get thee out of the country from thy kindred and from thy father's house into a land that I will show thee. And I will make of thee a great nation, and I will bless thee and make thy name great, and thou shalt be a blessing. That's a command there. You're going to be a blessing. This is what you're supposed to be doing. Verse 3, and I will bless them that bless thee, and curse him that curseth thee, and in thee shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Now, that's a little statement there that in the New Testament in Galatians chapter 3 says that this is the mention of the gospel. It's that in his, in his seed, all the earth is going to be blessed. It's a prophecy that there is going to be a Messiah who saves. He is going to be the blessing. Now, looking at the story, you just say, okay, God's got a plan. God's going to work through this nation uh, that is coming out of Abram, and they are going to, to be uh, a, a, the, the people that God is eventually going to send his son through. And I was thinking, okay, how do we preach a message about missionaries and everything like that? And it really comes down to this statement that we mentioned right there in the middle of verse 2. It says this, and thou shalt be a blessing. That is a command. You are to be a blessing. You're supposed to be a blessing to all of the nations. What God expected of Abraham and his descendants was this, is that they were to be a blessing to other nations by the fact that they were to display a relationship with God. That people were supposed to see what God was like by the way that they lived in relation to God. They were supposed to see this. One has said this, this word probably meant that along with the promises of God that granted enrichment, Abraham would, would share the knowledge of God with other people. The blessings given to Abraham could never be disassociated from the relationship with the Lord through faith and obedience. 
It thus became Abram's responsibility to transmit this message wherever he went. His responsibility, because God had been good to him and that he knew this God, was to communicate that knowledge to everyone around him. And you say, well, where does he end up? He ends up in the land of Canaan. And you go, wait a second, isn't that the group of people who are cursed and they're the ones who are really sinful and immoral uh, and uh, the like? And you go, "Uh uh-huh. He lives in a tent amongst them. He goes down to Egypt. He comes back again. And he is, wherever he's going, going to be a testimony to who God is. Now, does he, is he successful in all of this? There's at least two, two occasions where you read Abraham lied to world leaders about his wife. But for the most part, what you find Abram doing is connecting with God and you get to Genesis chapter 18 in this whole time where he is talking with God and wrestling over the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah and saying God would you rescue uh, if there was just but 15 and down to 10 righteous people in that city and God says I'll do this I mean he has the opportunity to fellowship with the God of the universe the creator of the universe what Abram was to be was a reflection of what God was like and to communicate what that God was like to a world of people who were going their own ways, had done their own things, had lived their lives out without God. In fact, they made up their own gods, and so they had multiple gods. And Abram was to be a testimony to them, along with his children, Isaac, and his other son, the son of him, Jacob. And to the 12 sons of Jacob, eventually known, well, Jacob realized this, named as Israel. He wrestled with God, and that night God called him Israel. His sons were then known as the sons of Israel, eventually the tribes of Israel. His sons were to be a reflection of what God was like and the blessing that was God was, had given to them. And you look through the rest of the story in Genesis going into Exodus. And what does God do? God has this nation that's lifted up to the greatest nation in the world at that time, Egypt. And God is using individuals in that nation, Moses and Aaron and the people, to be a demonstration of God's power. The nation of Egypt, by the time all of that was done, knew there was a God. He was named the Lord, Jehovah. They knew this. And the nation of Israel went through that uh, Red Sea, the final act that this nation of Egypt saw uh, and ultimately defeated Egypt. The nation of Egypt understood there was a God. In fact, the testimony of this went on 40 years in advance so that when the nation of Israel was ready to invade the promised land, there was an individual by the name of Rahab, a Canaanite, a prostitute, who had heard these stories about God delivering this nation and said, I want that God to be my God. You've lived out your life and been a reflection of this as a nation. I want that God to be my God. Rescue me when you come and destroy the city of Jericho. The nation had the opportunity to, to, in a great way, reflect their God because God gave them a plan for a tabernacle where he said, I will meet with my people And the whole system of the priests and the sacrifices and the tabernacle there was to get people to focus on who God was, to worship Him, to serve Him. And sadly, you go through the rest of 
the story? And does the nation of Israel do this well? And the answer is no. The book of Judges is a complete failure on the nation for over, over 400 years. They just go and fall into sin continuously over and over again, become overwhelmed by these other nations, go into slavery because they're worshiping other gods than Jehovah. They finally get kings who uh, set themselves up. The first king's not a great one, Saul, but they have a king by the name of David who is a man after God's own heart. And he rejoices in bringing the temple to, or the, the tabernacle to Jerusalem, but he's got his own failures, his own problems. But at least he, with his psalms and everything else, directs people's attention to God. But then you just follow the kings after this, and there's very few after that that are reflecting as the leaders of this nation a knowledge of God, a love for God. And eventually what you have is a whole group of people that are not reflecting the blessing that they had received from God, a blessing of a relationship with Him. No, they've fallen into complete idolatry and look like all the nations around them. And God says, enough is enough. And He sends them into exile for 70 years. They're held in captivity by the Babylonians. And you have uh, them there. And they come back. And you find as a nation that Israel doesn't go back to idol worship. But the problem for them is this. Is that they somehow think that they can obtain righteousness and a relationship with God by their own self-effort. They're no different than the world around them that says, hey, listen, we can become like God and, and uh, be like Him by our own self-effort. No, the nation of Israel is saying, hey, we can be right with God if we just put enough effort in. So by the time we get to what we have in the Gospels in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you have a nation of people for the most part that are going through the rituals of sacrifice in the temple. There's no relationship with God. Their teachers are simply saying this, you can't accomplish uh, a relationship with God, not on basis of faith and trust in God, but by your own self-effort. And when Jesus comes on the scene, this one who came through the nation of Israel and through the line of Judah and through the line of David, and you follow it out, this one who was God's answer to Genesis 3 and verse 15, what does the nation of Israel do? When he's presented before them, they yell this, crucify him, we have no king but Caesar. They reject the Messiah that came through their nation. You say, okay, God's done with them. No, He's not done with them. He's not done with them. But He has handed off their responsibility right now to another group, not a nation, but a new body that has been created. Not known in the Old Testament, but now in the New Testament, you have this thing called the church. It's filled with Jews and Gentiles, slaves and free. Uh, and it is filled with this, and you say, what is their responsibility? Just to have an organization where they can get together and they can fellowship and be okay with one another and uh, live out their life until they die. No, they've got a commission. I want you to turn to Matthew chapter 28 because it really does help you to understand that God has a plan that He really wants individuals to reflect the blessing that they have to the nations matthew chapter 28 and you find this statement 
Verse 19, go ye therefore and teach all nations. Understand that go ye therefore is a statement that you're already out in the world. Okay, having gone, you're already out there in the world that we live in. We're, you think about this, uh, we're thousands of miles away from Jerusalem. Uh, he was talking to people who had had their whole life centered in Jerusalem. Uh, and he's talking to people like us. We're already out amongst the nations. But what he says, go ye therefore and teach all nations. You go, what's this? Teach all nations means this. Make disciples of the nations and not disciples of yourself, but make disciples and followers of Jesus Christ. And you say, well, is that a blessing? I hope you think that's a blessing. Jesus Christ who came into this world to save sinners just like us. He lived a perfect sinless life so that he could be our substitute. He was God and that meant this, that he could fully pay for our sins and the sins of all mankind. He could do this. This individual who came into the world as part of God's plan to save the nations, what we have a part in that is to be a blessing to the nations. And you say, what's the blessing to the nations? Is to give them this message that there is one who has come into this world to save them and one who can uh, rescue them for eternity. And that he is desiring that they would be followers of him. And you say, well, Jesus, who is he? He's God. I mean, this is what God has wanted for mankind for generations, for people to trust and believe on him to live for him, to trust him and follow him. And so what we have as an opportunity as modern 2,000 years removed from Christ, 4,000 years or 4,500 years removed from Abraham, and this story of Tower of Babel, 4,000 years removed from Abraham, we are now called to be a blessing. That we have the responsibility to go and make disciples of Jesus Christ. And you say, what does that look like? First of all, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost. You go, what's that? A person who declared that they were a follower of Jesus Christ that had faith in him, they would get baptized. There's this element that you tell people, listen, this is the one who saves. And they would identify with Christ and say, he's my savior. Well, you'd have a process of baptism, but you don't leave people just there. What you do is this, is you also do this. You teach them whatsoever I have commanded you. What you do is you let them know about their God. What he's like, what he wants, what he desires. And that is the opportunity we have going to the nations. Some of us was part of the nations. We do uh, have uh, individuals in this congregation that are Jewish in background. But for the majority of us, we're all Gentiles. And God has given us the opportunity to be a blessing, to lift up Christ, to show him forth to the nations, to the peoples, of people of every tongue and society. And he allows us to do that. What we're doing is just continuing to carry out the plan that God has. He loves the nations. He desires for them to be reached. You have the nation of Israel that presently has failed to show forth who God is and to show forth his son. And we as the church in this present time, have the opportunity to be a blessing to the nations. That's part of God's plan. 
And so as we today have this meal afterwards where we are thankful for our missionaries and we have the flags that are here, realize that what we do in sending out missionaries from this church, we're being a part of the blessing to the nations. These people that we send out are lifting up Christ and and showing Him to people who've never heard, uh, lifting up God for them to see. And we are allowed to be the blessing. But do you realize we just don't send out missionaries and say, okay, our job is done in reaching the nations. No, for us, we ought to be doing the same thing amongst the people that we are with. Of lifting up Christ, lifting up God for people to see, and we can offer them the thing that they need, the answer for all of their problems. I mean, we can get involved in politics and we can get involved in all sorts of different things when it comes to the economy and business and technology and those type of things, but realize the solutions that we offer through those things are temporary. But when we lift up Christ for people to see, we're giving them the very thing that they're striving to get, the solution for their problems. We've got it in Christ. And so we have an opportunity as part of God's plan, he uses insignificant people like Abram, like the disciples, like us as people in the church to display him to the nations and to be a blessing. I trust we're doing that as we rejoice in what our missionaries are doing today. Uh, we rejoice that the nations are being reached in ways that we could never do ourselves. But are we doing our part as part of God's plan to be a blessing to all the people. Lord, we thank you. We are individuals that have the opportunity to have impact for eternity. That's true blessing. Our efforts in our job, in our society, in our communities uh, uh, to uh, take care of tasks and, and uh, solve problems between people. Those are, those are temporary solutions, but we have the one thing that they need as an answer to their problems. They're not right with you. They'll never be right with you by their own effort. They need a Savior. Lord, help us that know Jesus Christ as Savior to reflect Him, to show Him forth, to display Him, to hold forth Christ as the only thing that can truly bless for eternity, that can give things beyond this life, the temporary things of this life. May we lift up Christ and be part of your desire to save the nations. May we take our part in that. Lord, if there's one here today that is a part of this uh, time here with us that doesn't know Jesus as Savior, Lord, help them to see their need of Christ. They're going to die and be separated from you for eternity. There's frustration in this life and a separation for eternity in a place called hell if they don't know you and your Son. Lord, help them to put their faith in Jesus Christ as their only solution and hope of salvation. The only opportunity to fellowship with you, the one true God. So Lord, work in the hearts of individuals like that. So Lord, may we be people who are playing our role in your desire to reach the nations. 
give us the boldness at times that we need when we don't have it ourselves to proclaim your name and lift up your son and this we pray in the son who makes these things possible amen